All right, my hungry homies. Today's episode of House of Carbs brought to you by our good friends at Hotel Tonight. Let me share with you a little insider travel secret. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. That's how Hotel Tonight scores such incredible deals. They team up with awesome hotels to help them sell these empty rooms. They pass those savings along to you. Not like last resort places either. They work with cool top rated hotels where you actually want to stay. And even though their name is Hotel Tonight, you can actually book up to 100 days in advance in top destinations and up to a week in advance everywhere else. If you want to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, my taste buds, download the Hotel Tonight app now. Mac Weldon underwear, so my underwear is up to snuff. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mac Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities. They move with me, and they work hard, too. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. House is a big investor in the silver underwear. All that, and they're shipped right to your door. If you don't like your first pair, keep them. They will still refund you, no questions asked. I very much enjoy the t-shirts, form-fitting Mack Weldon t-shirts that fit very nicely inside of my high-class work pants. Highly recommend the t-shirts and the silver underwear line. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your purchase using the promo code CARBS. That's 20% off your purchase using the promo card C-A-R-B-S, MacWeldon.com. Do it today. My culinary comrades, here we go. We're back with another edition of House of Cars, the food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people. I am your hungry host, Joe House. Thanks for joining us today. Quick shout out before we get to the rundown of today's show. Quick shout out to the good people of Philadelphia. You know, I kind of dislike your football team. It is in my DNA as a fan of the Washington professional football team, but I don't think it's a coincidence that less than 45 days ago, I was in your great city eating some great food, including the roast pork at Nick's, the classic sandwich of all of Philadelphia. And here we are barely 45 days later, and you have achieved the summit Philadelphia. Shout out to Chris Ryan. Shout out to Andy Greenwald. Shout out to all our Philadelphia homies. I can't wait to get back up there and have some celebratory cheesesteaks and to tackle some of the other fine Philadelphia cuisine that was not part of the first belly takeover. Today's episode of House of Carbs, my hungry homies, we have a guest that you may know from a whole variety of television shows that he has developed, produced, and otherwise provided his golden touch. You may not know that Eric Rideholm also has a fantastic food story that goes in a lot of different directions and touches on a lot of different aspects of his life. He's a really interesting guy. He's a pal of mine, and I think you're going to love this conversation with him. Of course, we have Juliet Littman on for Food News. 
And we are very excited to have Lady Doritos show up on the internet right in time for this week's food news. I think Juliet has a couple takes. But before we hear all of that, let's get into this great conversation with my pal, Eric Rideholm. All right, my taste buds, my culinary comrades, my hungry homies. You know how we do here on House of Carbs. We have been very fortunate over the course of the show to get interesting and talented folks from a variety of walks of life. We've had, you know, folks from from media and philosophy and football and gambling and all kinds of things. Today's guest is a true sports media mogul called by none other than Sports Illustrated's kingmaker, Dickie Deitch. Am I allowed to call him Dickie? I think I'm allowed to call him one of the most powerful people in sports television. He is the executive producer of Pardon the Interruption. He is the executive producer of Highly Questionable. He is the executive producer of Around the Horn. He's also the executive producer of The Incredible Desus and Marrow Late Night Show on Vice TV, and there's an upcoming project. Are we allowed to talk about sure. it? Sure. Okay, Bom- Bomani and Pablo. Does it have a name yet? Uh, it does, but I will not reveal it yet. Oh! Well, it could have been breaking news here on House of Carbs. <laughs> also a founding partner of the global multimedia financial services company, The Motley Fool, our guest today on House of Carbs, Eric Rideholm. Welcome. Thank you. I am very surprised to be here today. (laughs) Well, that is a perfect entree in because with that kind of an esteemed uh, background, that kind of resume, the, 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 the hungry people may not think that you have anything to share as it relates to, to the, the, the food world necessarily. Mm -hmm. It doesn't leap off the page. Right. But, you and I have been pals for a pretty long time, longer than a decade. Uh, probably maybe coming up on 15 years. Yeah. It's not crazy. And over that time, I have come to know you in a whole variety of different ways as a person that has undergone an incredible food journey. I have, yes. In, in, in fact, let's start with um, – the most sort of prominent uh, way I've, I've, I've come to understand you and food, which is your diagnosis in your 40s as a grown-ass adult man of, of experiencing celiac. Yeah. So um, I grew up, and I think that uh, people who knew me as a younger person and maybe even now um, – would be flummoxed by your choice of putting me on any sort of a food-related podcast because I would say that for the most part, I was, um, people might say I wasn't an adventurous eater. Um, I would say I was an insecure eater. I only ate those things which I was confident that I liked and anything else that I was unconfident that I might like, I, I avoided. Um, but what this led to as I grew up and grew old was me simply eating the same things again and again and again. And so many of those things were carb-related, grain-related, um, uh, anything that was um, anything at all that was uh, a bread, a cracker, a beer, um, anything, uh, 
of of that sort of a consistency. Um, I I ate um, constantly, uh, never endingly, and for years on end. Um, it, it was comfort for me. Um, I'll I'll now jump ahead to forty two years old, um, eating this way as I've always eaten. Um, energy uh, suddenly um, dwindling, um, weight dwindling, uh, uh, blood counts, uh, white blood cell and, um, and platelets uh, dwindling, and um, rashes on the rise all over the place, um, most particularly and embarrassingly, um, all over my face. Huh. And um, to the point where I did not feel comfortable uh, leaving the apartment. I wondered if I was being poisoned by something, um, either dietarily or something in the apartment. I started to go um, and see doctors. I had sort of avoided them as all the other symptoms happened. But once you attack my vanity with the rash, now I really need to go ahead and tackle this thing. So I went to all sorts of different doctors and uh, no one could figure it out. I mean, I went to a hematologist. I went to a general practitioner. I went to a dermatologist. I went to an allergist. And, uh, and no one could figure anything out until I finally went to a naturopath who was also an MD. And within 10 minutes of me explaining all of my symptoms, he said, I think you might have a gluten allergy. Would you consider cutting gluten out of your diet? Um, well, this basically was my diet. <laughs> so it was a tall ask, but anything to make me feel better and to get rid of this rash on my face. And, um, and so I did. And, um, and I, we were just going to try it out for three weeks. And uh, after one week, I felt a surge in energy uh, to a point that I don't believe I'd felt even as a kid. Uh, a bonkers type energy, um, almost manic in nature, except calm, like mm -hmm. an extraordinarily high level of calm energy. And the rash started to clear up and weight started to come back on, even though I wasn't eating all the breadstuffs. And... Uh, I found myself, uh, I found myself um, suddenly realizing both A, that this seemed to be a great and positive step, and then B, um, terrified that it was simply going to be temporary. Hmm. So uh, there are many sort of fascinating things about that story um, the, the, that I hope we can sort of uh, tackle, the, the first of which is your diet as a young guy all the way up into your 40s consisting all nearly exclusively of, of, <laughs> of gluten-rich foods yeah. and how your instincts um, in terms of your adventurousness and what you went to for sustenance took you in that direction, notwithstanding the fact that you had this latent, uh, you know, yeah. um, antithetical in, inside your body, uh, you know, aversion to it. So I, I don't actually know whether this is right or not. And I don't know whether any of the things I speak of with my own sort of personal food journey um, is actually scientifically or medically correct. I yeah. can only simply tell you um, my interpretation of everything. But um, I, I think that what I sort of felt and how I made sense of it is that my body was craving nutrients. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, while I didn't know what nutrients it needed, it felt like it needed energy. And so the thing I knew that would bring me the quickest hit of energy would be 
um, carbs. Yeah. It would be um, simple carbs. And so anytime I would start to feel low, I would shovel them in my mouth to feel higher temporarily. But of course, we know the cycle that happens is that suddenly that energy burns off and you need them again. Right. And so that's sort of how I lived. I mean, when I was a kid, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but there were these giant tins, like Crisco-sized tins of Bremner wafers. Um, Bremner wafers was sort of this high-end, very light, flaky cracker. My mom would bring... I'd go through the whole damn thing, like in one <laughs> city, no problem. Um, if you brought a basket of bread to a table, a restaurant table, I would look around the table, make sure that I offered it to everybody else, and anything that was remaining... I would inhale and then quickly ask for another basket of bread. And these, in the end, like I now recognize them as warning signs. And even in the beginning, I was like, there's something wrong with me. Nobody else is eating this way. Right. Um, but I am. So there's there might be some deficiency here. So this is the thing. Fast forward to 42 years yeah. of age and you're confronted with a radical rewrite of your entire eating life, right. essentially. And, and it occurred at a moment, now I don't want to date you or date me, but uh, at the time that you got this diagnosis, the prevalence, the availability, the recognition of, of gluten sensitivities, of celiac, it was not as prompt. It was not as mainstream um, is the way I would describe it. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And so basically a lot of the options that would even be bread related or cracker related, which I normally would have just, you know, uh, flocked to um, was limited. But there were certain things like tortilla chips um, mm -hmm. uh, that made up for it or substituted for it. Um, but really what it did is it transformed my diet into eating food. I read around the same time In Defense of Food by Michael Pollan. Yes. And um, I think the, the, the advice in the first few sentences of the introduction of that book were um, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And he said, this is all I'm going to basically say throughout the whole book. So you don't even need to read the book <laughs> if you don't want to. But um, I read it and then I started living it. And um, – weird things started happening, not just to my body and my energy, but to my psychology. Ah, so this is, this is, see, I caught you at some point after you had, uh, you know, we'd see each other maybe a couple times a year. So at the point in our lives where our paths crossed, it was within some time after you'd received the diagnosis, mm -hmm. um, but not so much time had passed where you were say you, you could say uh, that that happened to me years. You know, this is something that happened to me years ago. It was fairly yeah, sort of current enough that you could share it um, and 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 you know talk about. You were going through the rewriting of your your diet. And what you described to me that was so profound, which is why you may not know this, I've had you on my list as a desired guest for this show since the outset of the show. It's just so happened. We're, we're six months in. So you're, <laughs> you're, but you're in. You're like, here we honored, are. We're doing honored, it. Jeff. We're doing it, my brother. Um, because of, of the profound way you described um, the, the, the change in mind, the change yeah. in approach. Can, can, can we talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I... We, people talk about uh, inflammation in their body um, all the time, and you can see signs from it. You can see you know, puffiness in your body. Um, you can see puffiness in your face, in your eyelids. You can see all of this when your body is inflamed. Um, and I had experienced that growing up. Um, but I'd always felt relatively consistent in my personality, and that personality was largely um, uh, introverted and insecure. Um, uh, but... Um, 
uh, clever in that I disguised lots of that um, as an insecure and uh, as an insecure person might um, in order to buy me security. Like if I could come off as being not so insecure, then maybe people would leave me alone and I could go about my business and I could trick them. Well, what I discovered once I cut out the gluten and in the weeks that followed um, was something that I did not anticipate, which is just as the inflammation in my body decreased, so it appeared and it felt did the inflammation in my psychology. So what would inflammation in a psychology be? Well, if you think about the nature of insecurity, it's taking some sort of a stimulus that could be ambiguous in nature and then going ahead and analyzing it as a threat. So now you're scared of something that might not even be scary. That's sort of what insecurity is to a certain extent. And um, as it just so happened, I became less scared of so many things. I started to see the ambiguous stimulus as ambiguous rather than as threatening. And suddenly um, I was able to take people and to take situations um, uh, in, at face value and they would consume far less anxiety or they would produce far less anxiety and consume far less energy for me. So suddenly I found myself more confident and uh, with the energy to tackle things that um, in the past I had avoided. Well, part of what stuck with me from that revelation, you know, um, many years ago and the way that you shared it with me that I, I found uh, so, so compelling was that it also provided a sensible narrative to a lot of your experiences from, from, from growing up where you didn't otherwise have a construct within which to kind of fit these experiences. And you just described it in terms of the insecurity, but also, you know, I, I recall you describing it in terms of, you know, athletic endeavors and, and you know, a, a lot of different kind of interactions and how the path that you, you ended up on was, was steered by this food challenge that you didn't know you had. Well, so there was a couple of things. Number one is anyone who I was meeting for the first time or even people close to me, I didn't see as opportunities. I saw them as low-level threats that mm. I had to guard against. The amount of energy that you have to put to put up that front, that force field to sort of keep people away um, is, is, is a lot. I also had skin that I was embarrassed by. And I started developing acne when I was 13. And at the age of 42, it was basically at the same level I had when I was 13. And if you can imagine the time when a lot of people have teenage acne and they're like, well, this stinks and they might be self-conscious about it. For me, it extended. It extended for decades. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I was um, I was embarrassed by it. And I hid and I didn't want um, people. I couldn't look people in the eyes. And the other benefit of uh, getting rid of the gluten is that suddenly my skin started to clear up. I could look people in the eyes. And so now I could face them where I saw people as opportunities with honest energy without something embarrassing, it was something that I was embarrassed by on my face and a world opened up. Yeah. So um, I'm going to segue into like the last, you know, um, seven or eight years of your sort of eating life, because for many, in many respects, um, the way I, that I think about it, it's not for me to think about, but when I wanted to have you on your, your eating journey over the last eight years has, has been, you know, as though we're starting from a 
blank slate. It's mm-hmm. a tabula rasa kind of deal. And that's why the things, the path that you've chosen in a handful of different ways in terms of your food journey. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be corny about that, but I think it's an easy way to kind of describe your relationship to food um, really starts from from that moment. Um so what I'm I'm interested in, um, in terms of of you know kind of that that revelation, your rewrite at that moment. Uh, now let let's to to be fair, Eric at 42 years old with the celiac diagnosis and and you know kind of rewriting had already achieved in, enormously great things. I mean, at that point you were uh, the executive producer of PTI, mm-hmm. enormously successful uh, at that point. Uh, the executive producer of Around the Horn, yeah. uh, highly questionable, was in development at that point. No, not quite. That okay. was actually a couple of years later. But I still had the partnership uh, and the ownership in the Motley Fool, which yeah. I was a founding partner right. in as right. well. So, with this food challenge, mm-hmm. uh, in, in you know, latent food challenge, you still had had some pretty great you know successes. I did, but you know, it was interesting. Like um, the thing I remember so much. Uh, and in the in the offices of the Motley Fool, when I was in my late twenties and early thirties, and for the first time in my life, being looked to by so many people um, who were employed at the company and were my colleagues, I was being looked to for leadership, and I started to realize that if I had uh, up energy, um, I was. Uh, I would I could hear the exact same pitch from somebody. And if I had up energy, I would be extraordinarily positive and say, let's go for it. I like this idea. And if I had low energy, I would be very down on the idea. And I didn't think this was fair. It meant that I was coming up with two different um, assessments of the exact same sort of piece of energy or excuse me, same piece of information or the same proposal. And it was all due to my different fluctuating energy. And um, I didn't think that that was fair to the people with whom I worked. And so I've always been extraordinarily conscious of the fact that what I eat can end up impacting how I decide or how I lead. So while I'd had some success, I would say that um, uh, I, I don't think that while I'd had some career success, I don't know how um, how fully my life um, I felt great about my life because mm-hmm. at the time my job was over, I would run home and hide. Wow. Okay. Well, let's let's segue then because you did have this revelation, you know, this miracle in your in your early forties. <laughs> I mean, I really don't mean to overstate it, but you, you kind of. I would say it's more like a revelation. I mean, I, I personally, of course, I see it as a miracle, but I don't want to overstate it for anybody else. Yeah. And I don't simply, and I also don't want them to think that this is something that's available to everybody. Right. 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 It's your experience. Right. Um, so let's talk about your involvement with the uh, city farming at Farm in Kent. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. The Farm in Kent. So um, I, uh, I, was, uh, I ran on weekends when I was up in New York. I was living in essentially I would go up and spend the weekend in a hotel on the Lower East Side. And I would run over the Williamsburg Bridge, run through Williamsburg, and then run back over the Williamsburg Bridge. And um, one day I was running by and a friend of mine had mentioned – that there was something going on in this big empty lot um, uh, one block from the East River in Williamsburg, in prime South uh, Williamsburg. And I went by as I was running, and there was a letter written to the community. Uh, and it was laminated and attached to a, uh, a chain-link fence. And the letter 
was written by a character who I could only describe as uh, Willy Wonkian. Um, it, it basically said, I have taken over this land and for you, the young people of Brooklyn and your children, I am going to turn this into a magical area where you can come and read books and play and sit in the sun and collaborate with others. We will have a farm. Um, we will have movies. There will be a bike track here where you can ride a bike around. And I'm doing this for you. And I want you to come and use this space and I read it and it was far more lyrical than I'm making it sound now, but that was the emphasis of it. And my, my immediate thought was, who is insane enough <laughs> to buy an acre of land in prime Williamsburg and turn it into a park for mm. kids? Like, what's the profit motive here? Right. I don't understand. And uh, so it was signed at the bottom and this person's name I Googled and I couldn't figure out how to touch base with this person. I'm now curious, by the way, I have the energy to be curious. Yeah, and right, now right. I'm curious and I want to track it down. But I did find some people who seem to be business associates of this person with an email address. And I reached out to them. And uh, this is an exceptionally long story. But I wrote to them and I said, I'm curious about people who do curious things. I'm, I'll be back in New York next weekend. Can I come by and, uh, and meet you? And they said, of course, and they happened to be familiar with some of the work that I had done. So we sat down and talked, and it turned out that they were building, there was a group of gentlemen who were building this farm, this venue space, this bike track, and they were doing it as part of a development. Uh, the Domino Sugar Factory takes up seven acres on the banks of the East River in Williamsburg, and one of those anchors the developer wanted to turn into community space in order as sort of a gesture toward the community. They had taken requests for proposals. These guys went ahead and won the bidding and were turning into a park. And um, I wanted to participate. And so I got involved first by shoveling rocks and mm -hmm. turning over topsoil mm -hmm. and then planting things, which was not something. Mean, my dad loved to plant things. Um, but uh, and I used to help them by putting like tree food spikes, hammering them into the ground. But this was on a different level Like we were seeding crops and things people would eat. What what made you in the group think that you could grow anything? Um, there were there was a farmer. I didn't think I could grow anything. <laughs> um, but there was a guy there um, named Henry Sweets. Um, Great name. Yes. And uh, and another gentleman by the name of Ryan Watson. And they were farmers. Legit farmers and living in Williamsburg and now had found this place um, uh, that allowed them and enabled them to go ahead and plant things and grow things. And the, <laughs> just I just have this image of Henry Sweets with his hand in this giant bucket of seeds and just like moving them around with his hand and like as he's trying to germinate them and uh, and talking about fertility and I, I and I was so on the into, banks of the east. I know, and I was like, I was so into it, and I was like, okay, where do I plant them? How do I go? And uh, and how do I help? And uh, so that's how I got involved. 
Um, but one of the things they did is they started growing their own produce is they started having suppers on Sunday yes. night. Yes. And there was an, there, there is an incredible vegan chef by the name of Emma Jane Gonzalez. And she would craft this meal made in part, if not in whole, depending on the dish, on things that we had grown at the farm. Mm-hmm. And that you would pay, like people would come from around the neighborhood and they would pay, I think, about $50 for the meal. And there would be wine and there would be this incredible vegan meal. And as I ate it, these were things I never would have – I described myself earlier as an insecure eater. I never would have eaten any of this right. when I was a younger man. And suddenly I didn't not, – not only wanted to eat it or not only would eat it, I wanted to eat it. Like I was excited. I was like, what will this taste like? As long as there's no gluten in it, I'm down. Yeah. Like let's go. Let's try this. And, uh, and so got involved and now it's been four summers – uh, at the farm, the farm has moved from one block away from the river now to directly on the river, um, just north of the Williamsburg Bridge. And it's open between usually, I think, uh, early May and late October. So what kind of things are being grown there? Uh, OK, so tomatoes. OK. Uh, okra. Yeah. Um, kale. Uh, eggplant. Uh, uh, what else? Um, radish. Uh, a whole variety of spices, I imagine. Uh, yes, in oregano. Fact, and... In fact, there is a, 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 a top end Swedish restaurant around the corner, and they grow spices there. Yeah, sure. We also have a shipping container full of mushrooms um, hmm. that uh, that uh, people are growing there. And so, um, all of these things, and I'm I'm leaving out, I'm sure, sure about sure. six different things that are growing. I'm just thinking of the things that I've harvested the most, which happen to be cherry tomatoes. Oh. I planted a blueberry bush, and it's grown at least 19 blueberries this season for the past three years, and I've eaten at least four. So. <laughs> I don't mean I, to demean this or to diminish the accomplishment in any way, shape, or form. 19 regular-sized blueberries? Yeah, but I, I, I'm telling you, whatever the taste is, they all taste better knowing that they would not have existed if you hadn't planted this thing. This was far away from my existence for a long I time, got it. Joe. I got you, and my just brother. the fact that I produced some food and I snagged it and I ate it. I Delicious. Have a, I have a picture of a green dish with a single blueberry in the middle that I put on Instagram a couple of years ago. So proud I was yes. of, of this development. Yeah. And I thank you for your Instagram account. This is really the way that I've come to experience your your food journey. <laughs> I mean, no no kidding. Like the, the farm at, in Kent, um, many times I've seen pictures of the communal dinner. Mm-hmm. I've seen, you know, people hard at work. And I've, I've thought to myself, what is this? Yeah. You know, in Williamsburg. And in, in the the um, <laughs> uh, the experience in getting sort of dirty and putting your hands in the land, I am not going to try and pass myself off as any sort of a farmer. I mean, I am a dilettante when it comes to all of this stuff. I'm going in, and sometimes I'm just going in to get a handful of cherry tomatoes for the gram. Like I'm doing it for the yeah, gram, for the gram, for you, word, you know. Word. But at, at the same time, um, uh, it does uh, connect me to food in a way that I don't think I'd always contemplated um, and helps me appreciate food in a way that I don't think I'd always appreciated. Well, I also want to talk about um, your relationship with the restaurant Colonia Verde Mm -hmm. and the the one particular 
um, thing that has developed over time, which is your Sunday brunches at Colonia Verde. But let's start first talk, talk about um, how you got in touch with the proprietors of Colonia Verde, how you fell in love with them and the relationship you had with them. So Tony Reale, uh, so, okay, first of all, when you uh, eat and you have a gluten allergy, and again, we're going back uh, a few years here, um, fewer alternatives for where to go eat um, when you're out and about. And Tony Reale, uh, host of Around the Horn, had been in New York. He is a New Yorker. And he recommended a restaurant near um, my friend uh, Tom's apartment called Comodo. He said, I think you'll really like it. And most of the menu is gluten free. Mm. And I was like, OK, I'm in. Right. Like, gosh, I mean, it's hard enough to find. Let's go. So we went and the place was so full of both great food, but also just life and energy. And we went on a Saturday night. And I just fell in love with the joint. It was small. There weren't more than 30 people in the whole place, but it was bouncing. It was somebody's birthday. Mm -hmm. And um, when they brought out the cake, they started flashing the lights up and down and they put um, uh, a celebration by cooling the gang on and the whole place started clapping and everything. And you know, I think that my older self or my younger self, sorry, um, would have been um, overwhelmed by it and turned off by it and wanted to run home. But this version of me was thrilled. And so the next weekend, I brought uh, two friends to the restaurant and we sat down on a Sunday night and I was telling them the incredible energy in this place. And we walk in and there's two other people. (laughs) (laughs) There is no energy whatsoever. But um, there were three of us at a table for four, and I did notice one of the owners, it was owned by a husband and wife, was there, and I invited her to come and join us for a glass of wine. And when she sat down, she told us uh, an incredible story of their simultaneous sort of romance and partnership. Um, They had both worked in advertising and decided uh, that what they really loved was bringing people together and connecting them. She talked about a concept um, called the sobremesa. And in sobremesa, you've had great food and you've had great wine. And now is the time in the evening where people open up and they uh, allow, um, uh, they don't conceal their vulnerabilities. They open up and you end up with a connection with other humans um, that you otherwise wouldn't have had. And it's all sort of um, uh, that entire um, uh, dynamic is made possible by the combination of the food, of the wine, of uh, the entire ambiance of the restaurant, by the Mm -hmm. comfort. And Mm. Comodo means comfort. Um, And uh, so... I fell in love with her and her husband Mm -hmm. who was in the back of the kitchen making the food. And I started going there um, on Friday nights when I got to New York. I'd get on the train in D.C., get off uh, in New York around 9 o'clock, head down there. And we just started having conversations. And several months after that, they had mentioned that they wanted to start a restaurant in Fort Greene. Mm. And I had made the decision in my life that I wanted to start taking more creative risks back in the same way that when I was eight. I would get together with friends and we might create a lemonade stand or put on a play or develop some sort of a weird wiffle ball league where we kept stats or whatever. I just started to realize I never played with anyone anymore. I never collaborated with anyone anymore. We just drank for the most part when we got together. So I asked them, can I help? Is there any way I can help? And they 
said, no, 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 we're all taken care of. That's great, though. It's very nice of you to offer. And then two weeks later, they called back and said, yeah, actually, you could. <laughs> and so I became an investor yeah. in a restaurant all right. that opened in, um, in for- the Fort Greene section of Brooklyn many, uh, about, um, I want to say, uh, four years ago now. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah. Now, one of the traditions uh, that, that has um, evolved there, maybe it, it was a, it's a tradition you started coincident with the re- restaurant opening. Um, it was. Okay. So the tradition is now, it's become a tradition. It yeah. didn't start out as such. Um, I just had a lot of, I had suddenly in my life, um, found all of these really smart, creative people in and around New York, that you know, human cultural capital that I was talking about earlier, and they didn't know each other. And so I was like, they should all know each other. Mm-hmm. And I was a little nervous. I was like, this feels like setting people up on a blind date. But I invited them, and some of them are people that are well-known um, to, uh, actually I'll, I'll list them. The first brunch was actually not held at Colonia Verde. It was a block down, uh, the street because Colonia Verde was not open at that time for this meal. But we had, uh, Ezra Edelman. Mm-hmm. We had Wyatt Sinak. We had Pablo Torre and we had Rembert Brown. Whoa! Yeah. I didn't know Rembert was an, was an original. It was o, an original. The, the O-est yeah. of OGs. And, Ezra and Wyatt knew each other, uh-huh. but that was really it. I just knew everyone else individually. And the idea that I had, the operating notion, the romantic idea, which I don't sure. think I really shared with them other than I think you guys might like each other. The romantic notion is maybe all of these guys might like each other enough just to start talking about things, help each other out, and maybe projects would get born mm-hmm. in this context or at least supported or encouraged in this context. And... The first one went pretty well, like, and we left, and I was like the nervous guy after the first date <laughs> with these guys. I'm standing on the corner, and I was like, so that, you know, that, that was fun, and hoping that somebody would also say, yeah, yeah, no, that was fun. And mm. I, maybe I heard it, you know, maybe not full-throatedly, but, yeah. but, and I said, well, so like, uh, would you guys like want to do this again sometime? <laughs> <laughs> and and the answer was uh, yeah like text me text me and so the next week I was like come on Eric be bold man you got energy now you got curiosity you're looking for inspiration do it so I invited them all again and most of them showed yeah and it just started becoming then every Sunday we would gather around eleven o'clock in the morning at uh, Colonia Verde and um, a, we ended up with an ideal table size of around eight. It depends on each member of the group. You ask what the ideal table size is, <laughs> but eight is about the largest group you can have and maintain a single conversation. And over the years, it's allowed us to bring in so many different people from so many different areas in and around New York. And what I mean by areas is so many different creative pursuits. Yeah. And um, and it's allowed me to connect. It's It's just a way for me to connect with so many different people and support and encourage um, and get the same um, from them. Um, Brunch is an incredibly underrated opportunity and meal because if you want to connect with people, 
frequently you're just like, let's go out to dinner. And dinner is really difficult to schedule. It's hard. Especially a weekend dinner. That's right. And then everyone's drinking too and restaurants are noisy or whatever. But if you go to a brunch at 11 a.m. and you get people there, that's before really the, the, the people who come in to, to drink during yes, brunch right. come in. Yep. Um, Sunday morning, usually pretty wide open on everyone's schedule. We all tended to be in the beginning a bunch of single guys, mm-hmm. but then it's expanded now as time has gone on. Um, but it becomes something that reliably you can expect people to join. And those, some of those people who are at that first brunch have become some of my uh, closer friends in New York, actually closest friends in well, New York. Just to sort of further emphasize the, the, the beauty of the, of the brunch construct, like the, the pacing of, of brunch also mm-hmm. really allows for that interaction, that, 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 you know, that face-to-face. And it's also a moment where nobody's really that revved up to do a lot of drinking That's because right. it's mostly a recovery mode for a and, lot of and, and none folks. of us do. Like we don't. Right. I remember somebody showed. I think Katie Nolan came to brunch one time and she 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 uh, confessed to me after. She was like, uh, "I showed up and I listened to everyone's order and I was like, okay, when some when is somebody going to get the mimosa?" <laughs> and nobody did. And she was like. So I guess this isn't that kind of brunch, and <laughs> and I could just hear the disappointment in her voice. Well, you, sh- you should have ordered her one. <laughs> and that's the last time we've seen her. Yeah. No, <laughs> she's never been invited back. <laughs> no, no, Sorry, no, 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 Katie. No, no, Katie is invited to everyone. No, she doesn't make very many because she lives in New Jersey, but um, yeah. well, we loved having her. So part of what um, made me want to dive deeper into the brunches. I mean, they're legendary, and I've been on the outside looking in. When am I going to get my invite? It's okay. <laughs> well, I, I say it that way uh, because uh, the people that listen to this podcast know that I try and invite myself to whatever it is. Every single guest I've had on, I've invited myself to whatever mm-hmm. thing it is that they do, except for Von Miller. I have not invited myself to Von Miller's Chicken Farm because right. it's not quite built up enough, but everybody else. So Obviously, you're here. I'm going to invite myself to the brunch. Goes without saying. Well, you, you don't need to because I'm inviting you. <laughs> well, let's see how sweet that is. Yeah. Very kind of you, my friend. I listened to Jim Miller's podcast that mm-hmm. came out earlier this year. It's 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 quite brilliant in in concept and and in execution. It's just epic. Is the only thing that is a, a challenge about it in terms of uh, it's Jim Miller. It's origins where he takes on, you know, wildly successful, um, you know, projects in, in a whole variety of walks of, of life and tries to go to the very beginnings and talks to the people and does a lot of... of uh, oral history. Oral yeah. history, right. So Jim Miller is doing an oral history in podcast form. And it's it's long, <laughs> so Very. so it's a it's not an easy listen. You have to listen to it in in episodes when your your life kind of permits it. But it's it's endlessly fascinating. I love the PTI one. One of the things that reminded me that I wanted to have you on the show um, that leapt out of the 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 earbuds as I'm listening to Jim Miller's tale as people told their stories is how much of the show came together over meals. Yeah. So, you know, it's you you told uh, a, a kind of a seminal moment between you and Tony Kornheiser. This is your first time you're with Tony. I know that you know the story because you told the story. Um, let me let you tell the story for well, folks that haven't listened to Jim Miller's great podcast. So I had um, been uh, invited um, on uh, to create this show, pardon the interruption. And I had met Mike before, Mike Wilbon. We were Chicagoans, and I had met him actually at a dinner party. 
um, in the D.C. area not a month before. And we sat next to each other and just talked about Chicago the whole time. And this project, PTI, was not on the radar, that, at least for me at that time. But in the subsequent weeks that followed, it very much was on the radar. And I had never met Tony Kornheiser. And so we were having a gathering at a local hotel uh, the West End in, D- in the West End in D.C. And um, we were going to have about 25 people around a giant table. But before that, I was going to go and sit down at breakfast with Tony Kornheiser. And I entered the uh, restaurant in the hotel, and he was already sitting there. And his back was against the window. And I sat across from him, and the sun was directly behind him. And uh, all I saw essentially was a silhouette of Tony Kornheiser. And he was intimidating enough. I'd known um, his razor-sharp wit and intellect. And, like, what Tony does in life is judge people and things. (laughs) And so I I was terrified about how I was about to be judged. Remember, too... This is before my gluten allergy had been diagnosed. And so th- my insecurity, I walked in with, uh, with tons of insecurity and insulation, and I was terrified at how I'd be perceived. Um, and the thing that as you look at him in silhouette um, that I could just make out, though, was <laughs> on his face inside at breakfast also were sunglasses. And so he was wearing sunglasses inside. He was armored up. I felt like at every sort of conceivable disadvantage in this conversation. Um, And as we began to talk, and I was nervous, and I rambled in much probably the same way as I'm doing at this very instant. How dare you? And and at the end, I just... I just decided I'm just going to throw everything but the kitchen sink out there. And I said something about Britney Spears, and he seemed to uh, ponder it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I think that my opportunity to connect with Tony Kornheiser uh, has just been sunk by me mentioning Britney Spears. And he uh, he had his fork in his hand. He sort of pointed at me, and he goes, then I think you should produce this show. <laughs> And so I was like, that was it. I I just basically um, when you're a kid, sometimes you'd be faced with a panel of buttons and you just press them all sort of randomly. And that's what I felt like I was doing in the meeting. I was just pressing buttons (laughs) and I pressed one and I got the desired response. And I was like, I'm in. Okay. And we went into the meeting and everything else uh, worked out. It was the Britney Spears button. Yeah. And I wish I could even tell you it was a good idea. It doesn't matter. Uh, It's it's enough that you recall that it was Britney. (laughs) But I do love very much. uh, And it obviously resonates with me because I think about the world, you know, in two ways now. Um, how to experience it on the golf course and how to experience it at the dining table um, because of these podcasts, uh, these insane podcasts that I'm doing. But um, the throughout the podcast, the, the tales of how the show came together all occurred at meals. Yeah, Mark did. Shapiro and Michael yeah. Wilbon, four and yeah. a half hour meal. Mark Shapiro sitting in a diner up in, in uh, Connecticut and w- with uh, a legendary agent of some sort. Uh, 
where where uh, the, the gentleman utters the the phrase "pardon the interruption" right, 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 while yeah, they're yeah. having a conversation, and Mark's Joey, like, "Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa!" You yeah. know, and 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 but it's it's you know it's over eggs and bacon, it's yeah. over the, the 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 meal and how these meals, your, your uh, experience with the brunch and the way that that you um, have imagined that as a great place for for bringing people that you love and that you think um, should should be together into yeah. your life and into each other's lives. That's the aspect of this. That that is so you know compelling. Honestly, like I, uh, um, I don't know why I didn't do this years ago. I mean, I, I don't think I had the energy to do it years ago. But if you are creative and you are looking for inspiration, um, and you are a curious person, um, which means that you have some energy to be curious, um, I highly recommend that you put together a Sunday meal, morning meal somewhere and invite your most creative friends to come and meet each other, just to see what happens, to be there at the genesis of their friendships, their relationships, and even um, uh, occasionally um, their inspired ideas, inspired simply by meeting one another. And um, I am a person who uh, feels most fulfilled when, He's creating, growing, giving, and loving. That is not an answer I could have given you eight years ago. Um, It's an answer I can give you wholeheartedly now. And being at the scene of creativity, um, where people are coming together and creating, being at a place where I feel like I'm growing because we're having conversations that inspire and teach and give me a different way, different ways of of looking at the world through other people's eyes, Um, giving, like, using this as a platform in some ways for generosity, like, um, you know, bringing all of these folks in um, and then loving, just like supporting and encouraging people in their own individual pursuits and projects. Um, It's been wonderful. And I think that if you are interested in not just building a great career or an interesting career, but an interesting life, I just highly recommend you try it yourself. And um, because I... Uh, now that you mentioned golf, um, another huge change in my life um, from the time that was uh, before my gluten diagnosis, my gluten allergy diagnosis to after, was that I used to golf all the time. And for me, and this is not for anyone else, but for me, golf was a way of hiding while being present. Mm-hmm. I could be with a group of three others, of four people out on the course, or just with like one of my best friends. And you're together with them, but you're also always off going to your own ball. And right. so you, you can spend a lot of time or a little time. It's not a lot of face-to-face conversation. I didn't feel threatened. Or I spent a ton of time on the golf course. And the reason I mentioned this in relation to brunch is that on Saturdays and Sundays, my tradition used to be I used to go out to golf mm-hmm. instead of going out to brunch. Now, I will say... A day of golf takes like seven hours, at least in these parts, for me, an hour out to the course, five hour round, an hour back. It's a huge commitment. Um, brunch is like a two hour commitment and it's it's great. Um, and you get to look at people face to face. You get to do that. And I've golfed now once a year, I think, for the last three or four years. Like I just it's not part of my life in the way that it used to be. Um Partly because I don't feel like I need to hide from people, or I don't need to use it to hide from people in the same way that I used to. Sure, sure. And I, I uh, have a golf podcast, so I don't. I only want to talk about um, 
just just a very quick sort of follow on <laughs> concept to that, which is, you know, uh, the the there's no doubt that it's an overwhelming commitment. The way that I have dealt with that is by playing during the week. So <laughs> that's not an option for you because you work I, for a living. I just cackled because I thought you were going to say is I have a golf podcast and this isn't it, Eric. This is food. Can we stop talking about golf? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, you're killing my vibe. Well, even I don't think that I would have that story on the golf podcast. <laughs> I probably, you yeah, know, it have, is a, it is can be a pretty overwhelming yeah. time commitment, and it does come at the expense of a lot of other important things that <laughs> smart people could be doing with their lives. All that is true. I already had to, to you know, I had Malcolm Gladwell on earlier this year. Uh, I mean, in the fall. Um, to talk about McDonald's French fries because he did a revisionist history on that, but he'd also done a revisionist history about golf in out in Los in Angeles. LA, yeah, yeah. I so I had to take umbrage with some of the ways he character. I mean, he he led with I hate golf, so I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> let that stand. So he was gracious enough to come on, and we talked about McDonald's French fries, and then talked about golf a little bit. I had to stand up for golf, so that's all that's all I'm doing here as well. I don't I don't hate it. In fact, in some ways, I feel like it saved me. Um, like it just. It gave me the opportunity to go out and be with people at a time when I didn't feel comfortable sure, to do it. It makes and, sense. Uh, and got me fresh air. And so, uh, and I never got really m- much better at it. <laughs> so well, that's, you know, welcome to, to the, <laughs> our, our, everybody else's world. Last last thing we do here on, on House of Carbs, we, we ask for, and it's not intended to be morbid, but we do ask for people kind of where their heads are at. And the way we characterize this is last meal mm-hmm. on earth. Yeah. So you... Um, you know your your palate now um, mm-hmm. is 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 you know very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. You're 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 in the ground. You're growing a single blueberry mm-hmm. could be one of the items. Let's share with our hungry homies, our taste buds out there. Your 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 perfect menu. I know that I just sprung this on you. No no no. But let, let's hear Sorry. three or four things that might be on the ride home last so year. So let me. Uh, I'll, I'll first uh, preface the answer by saying that. Um, I'm always trying to calibrate how I eat. Um, I believe that um, the food that I put in my body um, is highly connected to how I feel as a person. Um, on days when I sometimes I feel shaky, I think, what did I eat? Mm-hmm. What did I have? And almost invariably, there is some, uh, there's something that was too sweet. There was too much sugar. There was something. Um, I, I, uh, occasionally, I will have had gluten. Mm. By mistake, mm-hmm. and I will realize, oh, I'm slow and sad for about three days until this clears. Um, so my sensitivity to what I eat has gone up. And so in that calibration, I basically now have developed some go-to meals. All right. Um, meals that I love, meals that I create, and um, and my hunch and my default would be I would make my last dinner and the, the the dinner that I create and that I love the most right now um, are these wonderful egg tacos that huh. I make. Okay. Um, uh, I don't want to – I mean, how much detail do you want? I mean, this – The pe- detail. Peppers, tomatoes, sun-dried tomatoes, uh, chicken bacon, um, rosemary, adobo seasoning, cinnamon, mm. Um and all mixed together in an egg scramble, which then sits on uh, corn tortillas. Um, and 
How do you prepare tops. the corn tortillas? I'm not suggesting that you make them by hand, but how do you like? Depends what I have available. If okay. I have a toaster oven, they go yeah. into the toaster oven, Great. but not so that they're hard crispy. Mm-hmm. Basically, so that they're they're just they're they're warm. Yeah. But um, you know, I got to be honest. Uh, the microwave doesn't do a terrible job. If you nuke them very quickly, they become soft and pliable yeah. enough to yep. to really use there. Um, and then topped with either uh, some tomato salsa or just a bit of guac, and um, that is the meal that I think would both make me feel comfortable and most importantly, as this is my last meal, it would also make me feel like I've eaten healthy enough where I could stay alive. And so maybe it won't be my last meal. <laughs> I love it. And I can have another uh, uh, another uh, of them tomorrow. Yeah, another day of, of, yes. of beautiful egg tacos. <laughs> Eric Rideholm, thank you so much for coming on House of Carbs. Such a pleasure, Joe. All right, my hungry homies, big, big, big thanks to the media mogul Eric Rodholm for coming on and sharing with us his food story. Of course, we're going to jump into some food news this week with Juliet Littman. But before we get there, a quick word from our pals at Lisa. Lisa is driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody. And it is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious. In fact, for every 10 mattresses that Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. They also plant one tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Not to mention, with a patented, universal, adaptive feel, Lisa is designed for all types of sleepers and features three premium foam layers, including the two-inch Avena foam top layer for cooling and breathability. Next, a two-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief. And then at the bottom, a six-inch dense core. Support foam for durability and structure works for sleepers of all sizes. And now Lisa is continuing to expand its offerings to include the Lisa pillow, the Lisa blanket, the Lisa foundation, and the Lisa frame. No wonder it is a Forbes top 20 startup to watch. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Available in the U.S., the U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress shipped compressed in a box right to your door. Or go ahead and try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, as well as Virginia Beach. Or go check out these Lisa mattresses at over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. My hungry homies, get $100 off. That's a lot when you go check out these prices for Lisa. $100 off when you go to leesa.com slash carbs. That's lisa.com slash C-A-R-B-S. Lisa.com slash carbs and save yourself 100 bucks. Today's show also brought to you by our good pals at BMW. The all-new BMW X3 was not built for everyone. It was engineered for those who share the desire of more. As you know, my taste buds, that is exactly who we are. More passion, more ambition, more appetite, more making every second count, more spontaneity, more curiosity, more venturing off the beaten path, more traveling, more exploring, 
more leaving your comfort zone and never returning, the BMW X3 is capable of more with the level of performance that you expect from a BMW. The iDrive 6.0 with an intuitive touchscreen, available safety features like active blind spot detection can come in handy to avoid those blind spots. And lane keeping assistant, that next generation X Drive intelligent all wheel drive, the all new BMW X3 was built to handle whatever road, terrain, faulty driver, or adventure is ahead no matter what, because for some, more isn't a maybe, it is a must. Come in and test drive the all-new BMW X3 at your local BMW center today. BMW only makes one thing, the ultimate driving machine. Okay, Taste Buds, we are at that point in the show. It is now time for Food News. Yo, Juliet! Hello, I'm back. Hola, should I you're, say? You're back. Hola. Si, senorita. <laughs> we have a couple of things to cover before we jump into the news this week. Yes, we do. And I know I've, I've teased it already. Lady Doritos, goodness gracious. I mean, it's just a... God bless the internet. It's The, the timing rarely lines up that we have such a great story uh, on, a, on a day that we're recording. But we'll tackle that soon enough. You were on assignment in Mexico, and you're back. <laughs> it was a, it was a mini break. I assigned myself to go to Mexico. That's correct. Yes, 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 yes. yes. I went to and Puerto Vallarta. You... Okay, which I'd never been to Mexico before. It's quite close, easy to get to. Oh wow! Don't know why. Wow. I waited. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, let me let me let's tap the brakes there. Yeah. How long have you been in LA now? Six years this week. And and this was your first trip to Mexico. Yeah, I know. I have I had for months been threatening to drive to Tijuana, but I decided yeah. to really take the plunge and go to like real tourist Mexico. So I went to Puerto Vallarta. It was delightful. Stayed at a great Hyatt, and it was wonderful. I like heard whales. They're like right. I was staying on a really nice beach, and they're right off the beach. It was delightful. Okay, all those things are great. I I care about them not nearly as much as the food. <laughs> I want to hear okay. about the food. So I only left the hotel for two meals, and they were both great. One was like to yeah. this place called El Rayon, which was delicious, kind of like more traditional Puerto Vallarta food. The best thing I had, I had two amazing things there. One was a beverage. It was like a passion fruit margarita that was served to you in like a potted plant dish. It was like a like a um, like a red ceramic cup but it just felt more it just felt this, big. it was really big it makes a ton of sense you know uh i my own self uh, my honeymoon was in Zihuatanejo <laughs> on the west coast of, of of mexico and i you you forget as a well at least i did as an east coast elite you know going traveling to the other side of the world how close mexico is to the equator yeah. duh and this idea of passion fruit like you can get truly tropical fresh fruit um and it's part of the ordinary course daily living and it, it's extraordinary i interrupted you i want to hear more about your passion fruit beverage it was really good called a contorito it was uh uh mm. clear tequila like citric some like passion fruit juice yeah. and like i think that's it basically it was really good great i had like three great. and then we had these yeah. these um plantain empanadas that were just delicious and then i had awesome. duck apparently like a slow roasted duck is like a, a Puerto Vallarta food. So that was delicious. How was it prepared? Was it a, a salo style on an, like an outdoor, you know, charcoal kind of kind of situation? I, I don't or what, know. How? I don't Do know, know how. It's okay. I'm sorry. Well, how did they serve it to you? Was it sliced, like the no. breast sliced up on a plate? No. no? Okay. It was like still on the bone. 
It was really good. Oh, I think and actually, how, and, I think it was duck barbacoa that they prepared it like they do with beef. Oh actually, God. it was really good. Now, you, now, now you're driving yeah. me crazy. It's it dinner re- time in the here DMV. <laughs> it was really oh, good. No. Yeah, sorry, they, I'm sorry. It was duck carnitas, and it's this it's, duck carnitas. Yeah, my bad. Terrific. It was, it's oh, a one third of a duck in one piece, slow cooked, and then it's like in this orange sauce that comes with potatoes. It was delicious. It was so good. Also, so cheap. Yeah, just fantastic. Yeah, food. right, right, sure, of course. Um, but the real the real culinary highlight was not even just the food, but I, my friend and I, it was with my friend Tara, we decided to go to this restaurant we read about with like good reviews. It seemed a little, a little like, it was kind of like hip. It was called La Leche. And okay. then I wanted to know like what to order there. So I was Googling it. And when I Googled it, I learned that it was where um, El Chapo's son, one of his sons, had been abducted, but 18 months earlier. I was like, wow. Oh, no. So this oh, is, no. this is a landmark. I'm excited. Yeah. And um, I didn't ask about it when I got there, but it was a cool place. Like everything is in white there, which is why it's called La Leche, like white milk. Um, uh-huh. And it's kind of like more modern cuisine. They have a different menu every day. And the best thing I had there was a truly delicious octopus tostada, you know, like on like the crispy tortilla. Uh, and then it had like a layer yeah. of like avocado spread and then grilled octopus. Yes. Grilled octopus is truly one of my favorite foods. So it was just really delicious. When you know it's like so spectacularly fresh, like yeah. they, they, you know, somebody obtained that octopus that morning and brought it for your personal enjoyment that evening, that that I that adds to it for me. Yeah, it was really delicious. I had a great yeah. time. Mexico's so easy. I'm gonna go back quite soon. Good, good. I'm sure the Mexicans are happy about that. Um, yeah, totally. All right, so that's Mexico. Yes. Now let's talk about last night. Um, in the first place, uh, who is your rooting interest? Definitely for the Eagles. Good. Me too. That Duh. was, well, in the sense that. Uh, I hate Bob Kraft. I just, that's all anybody. I hate him. Yeah. I just hate sure. him. Sure. I, I, I'm, I support all of that. I'm, I'm anyone, anybody but the Patriots. I can't really like affirmatively root for the Eagles because they're in the sure. NFC East. Sure. It's in my DNA to, to not root for them. But, uh, the game was thrilling, was exciting. And, Probably, uh, you know, matched only by the excitement on my personal dinner table. But I'm interested in hearing about your Super Bowl feast. I went to a friend's house, like in her with her family in her family's house, and um, they had a lot of dips. It was amazing, and I, as you know, dips and desserts—that's oh, my jam. Wow. So the spread, yep. the pre-dinner spread, really was phenomenal. Two different kinds of guacamole. One was just sort of lime juice and avocado salt, etc. The other had. Um, uh, cilantro and jalapenos, which was good, obviously. Who mm, doesn't like that? Sure. There was a great right. black bean dip that also had pinto beans and jicama. That was delicious. Oh, I love the sound of that. Yes. There was a homemade, like from from onions, uh, Ina Garten onion dip. That was delicious. Uh, okay. Um, There was also some pub cheese, which I freaking love. Yeah, yeah, we've I, have we crossed the pub cheese. I think uh, we may have discussed it. It's bridge. one of my favorite foods. Yeah. It's just of course. so good. Um, and a ton of Lacroix for me to be drinking club soda because I was too tired to have beer, and um, it was great. Yeah, a, a spread was... a spread of dips. I mean, how could I ask for anything more? Did, so you just you know satiated yourself with the dip spread was there an additional courses yes. were there other there was there also brisket there and- was brisk barbecue brisket for dinner with oh, also yeah, um yeah. some uh 
what's it called? Coleslaw. <laughs> and I don't know why I can't think. Coleslaw, collard greens. It was just all, it was really good. But the, there's great, also, great. I forgot to mention there were three kinds of salsas, red salsas as well. So all the dips of my heart, that my heart could possibly ask for. That's, that's, that's a Super Bowl spread. Did you take any pictures? No, of course not. That's Sorry. okay. That's I'm really fine. bad no, at food packs. They're not, they're hard to do well. <laughs> if only you were on a food podcast where we encourage people to send food pics. I know. No, you did a great job um, from uh, Puerto Vallarta. That's Thank how you. I knew you were Puerto on assignment. Yeah, yeah it was, exactly. It was terrific. I was yeah. living my life by the ocean. I'm happiest by the sea. Like well, le- uh, legions of Jewish people before me. <laughs> you, you, you're in the right place. Yeah. I actually like, hate the desert. Like everyone's like, oh, let's go to Palm Springs, go to Joshua Tree. And I'm like, nah, no thanks. <clears throat> Just want to stay by the ocean. What's, what's really so good about the desert? Yeah. Unless you're playing golf and I don't play golf. Yeah, I do. And I've been to Palm Springs and Joshua Tree. Real snooze cool. fast out there. Yeah, it depends on your, your tastes. Different strokes <laughs> for different folks, Juliet. Okay, house. Okay, fine. Speaking of different strokes for different folks. We got a heat rock today. Yeah, we got a, <laughs> yeah. We got a big one to discuss. Um, the Dor- Doritos, which had a great commercial last night featuring Tyrion Lannister of Game of Thrones, also known as yeah. everyone's favorite Peter Dinklage. Um Tougher times today. Tougher times today. <laughs> Boy, the, the worm can turn in, in, in 12 hours. Yes. That's barely how long it took. Yes. The CEO of PepsiCo named Indra Nui, and PepsiCo owns Doritos. I think they own Frito-Lay, actually. Um, and they had those commercials together last night, in fact. Uh, she went on the Freakonomics uh, radio show on WNYC, also can be enjoyed as a podcast, much like this. And she discussed the different ways that men and eat, women eat chips. I'm reading from the NPR report on this. She said, men lick their fingers with great glee. And when they reach the bottom of the bag, they pour the little broken pieces into their mouth because they don't want to lose that taste of flavor and the broken chips in the bottom. She continued, women would love to do the same, but they don't. They don't like to crunch too loudly in public and they don't lick their fingers generously and they don't like to pour the little broken pieces and the flavor into their mouth. Stephen Dubner, the host of Freakonomics, asked that they were developing separate male and female versions of the chips. And here's the real, here's the real money shot or money quote, I should say. It's not, a, it's not a male and female as much as are there snacks for women that can be designed and packaged differently? And yes, we are looking at it. We're getting ready to launch a bunch of them soon. For women, low crunch... The full taste profile, not have so much of the flavor stick on their fingers. And how can you put it in a purse? Because women love to carry a snack in their purse. So, yes, there's a lot to unpack here. I just want to begin with saying, yes, I do love to carry a snack in my purse. Give me some M&Ms. Give me uh, uh, some trail mix, whatever. But it doesn't have to be different from what men would put in their pocket. (laughs) (laughs) It's just... This is ridiculous. I, I, I read it a couple times and I wondered... You know, she, as we do, we think about a little bit what we're going to say on the podcast. I mean, a lot of this is seat of the pants, but she's the CEO speaking on behalf of a global brand. And she had to have put some thought in in advance to how she wanted to present this. And I'll call it innovation because I imagine that's the way they imagine it. Sure. And I wondered if there wasn't an element of all publicity is good publicity. So I'm going to talk about this in a way that is so askance and askew of the mainstream that uh, it will get reported in every outlet. I mean, I can't tell you how many uh, stories are already out across mainstream media 
from women journalists saying, oh, let me tell you about my experience, you know, how I will, I'll, I'll be interested in consuming my Lady Doritos. It really went viral uh, in, in this, this short order. And it, it did, you know, have the effect of stepping all over poor Peter Dinklage and Morgan Freeman, uh, a marriage uh, made in heaven, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Yes. The, Everyone's been waiting the, on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I'm trying to think outside the box about, you know, how it could be that those words would be in her brain and then come out of her mouth. I, I don't know. I think that they probably genuinely think they're doing like innovative work at this company. I don't know. It also just sort of sort of shows you how much work probably goes in between an original marketing marketing idea of the company and then the final product from like their advertising company or whoever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think yeah. it speaks to the way that the way these companies have ideas and they change and they morph before they uh, arrive to the consumer. That's not excusing for it sure. at all. But I do think it's like no, actually kind of a good like look into the cynical nature of coming up with new products for these kinds of companies. Well, I, I want to talk about um, the uh, god awful Diet Coke flavors mm. and that commercial that was. Uh, did you see the commercial last night? I did indeed. Yeah, so we'll talk about it in a second. But I, I do think, you know, on the one hand, relating to the Lady Doritos, the notion of trying to accommodate a taste is fine. But, like, you can't do half the world's population. Better than 50% of the world's population is female. And the way we're going to accommodate it is through the, the, the grossest stereotypes that are, that are available. Like, do you care about selling these in the United States of America? That's my question to PepsiCo CEO Indira. Yeah. I'm sure I botched her name. I, I I don't know. I think that also there's just so much cynicism about like how to get a certain like demographic instead of just like making the best thing possible. Although, you know, right. with food packaging, it does does matter. But like you could do that without being like, these are for ladies. Less less crun- like crunchy noise. That's part of, right. Part That's of eating right. chips though, by the way, is the crunch. Like I think you actually would lose something from the experience if you don't have that crunch. Who wants a less crunchy mother effing chip? No one. And then nobody's putting their hand up. Oh, I would like this so much better if it was less crunchy. Get the fuck out of here. If the point was specifically for sneaking it into your purse to bring it to a like a like a you know a award show or a long play or something like that, I could trying to starve. I could get behind that, but please brand it as like snacks for smuggling, not snacks for ladies. Yeah, just use your brains. We're trying to stave off the hangry. Yeah, you know what I mean. I could slip these into to my own my wife's you know you know bag so that she has something. Uh, you know, it's it's that uh, that old Snickers n- notion, right? You yeah, know, it fits in the bag. It's perfect, and, but it's not a. It doesn't have. They're, they're equal opportunity. Men get hangry too. I'm hangry right now. It was because so I absurd. you just talked about duck barbacoa and duck carnitas, and I'm starving. <laughs> Sorry, Hass, my bad. But yeah, I, this was just so so dumb. She's gonna regret that. I, I kind of feel I bad think for she's her. gonna regret it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I you know there's maybe all of these things. This is speaking of of cynical. Carry with them an opportunity. So the opportunity to make it right. You know, some free Dorito day. Yeah, I can only imagine what nonsense they'll 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 gin up um, to try and make it right. But, you know, they better give free, if it's free Doritos, they better be equal opportunity. I want my free Doritos too, even though I wasn't offended by this. <laughs> I mean, I'm mean, it's, it's offensive, but Doritos for all. That's the idea. That's the point. Um, do you want to talk about these Diet Coke flavors before we move on to our next story? I just want to talk about the ad. Okay. I know it wasn't for me. 
Mm-hmm. So I was the, not the demo they were intending to convey this to, but it did confirm to me um, certain things we were suspicious about when they announced the flavors, which is they have a very specific niche market that they're trying to appeal to with these crazy flavors. And then they went so off the wall with the ad. Um, I'm just going to sort of leave it at that. I'm, I'm interested in your take before I go all the way in. Well, I just, to be honest, I was like, oh, this looks gross. And I kind of like tuned it out. I was like, I'm never having these. So, like, give me better commercials. I thought it was one of the worst commercials of the night, to be honest. Like all of the Tide ones, there, of which there are many, were way more impactful. It didn't really leave a mark, I guess. Yeah, I I uh, thought it was so curious to to go heavy niche the the way that it seemed they were going. I mean, it it really is. Maybe I, it seemed like the demographic that that is intended for is um, young women eighteen to twenty five. Yeah, and if you're not in that segment. Yeah, you was, might not be interested. Yeah, it was like for like women they think are trying to like look good or something like that or playing into like the idea of like a millennial hipster woman, whatever they think that is. I agree with that. That that is yeah. that was my takeaway. It felt very gendered. And and you know, really specific. This is we have a very um narrow group in mind for this. Everybody else enjoy your 35 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's advertising. It does seem like the way that, that advertisers make a play for women is just more transparent and like more cynical than for men. I think that's what we're responding I, to in both of these stories. I, I agree with you. Although I don't know. What do you think Dilly Dilly is for? Dilly Dilly's for college kids for sure. Yeah, that's a great point. Dilly that's Dilly. And it's really ca- caught on. <laughs> it, it has a certain appeal. I mean, I, I can't champion it. Um because of how uh, absurd it is with the with the broisms, I mean, it's just as big. It was just say bro, dilly dilly, but uh, I it does have a certain you know a certain there's a laugh factor there. Yeah, yeah. But you want to know what? It's not gender. Dilly dilly's for is for all, for all. It's a great point. I agree with you. <laughs> Lastly, I want to talk to you about a new development at Starbucks. I go yes. to Starbucks almost every day, as I know you do as well. Can you repeat yeah, your insane one. order? Well, I, I, it depends. <laughs> it, it, it your varies. After, your afternoon order, when you go to say hi to your baristas, what do you get? Uh, right. T- just today, it was just an iced Americano. Okay, so an iced venti Americano. That's boring. Fine. My, my, my start the day has been lately a, an iced Trenta cold brew <laughs> With two shots of espresso and and one pump classic. That's an insane order. That's just insane. That's a, There's so it's got much a lot caffeine. Of flavor. It's so much there, caffeine. <laughs> it 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 should be enough to carry through the whole day, so that I wouldn't have to get the iced americano in the afternoon. But you know, uh, to, to to prop open these old Italian eyes of mine, I need I need that that jump start. And uh, that's that's my that's my winter go to. My lowly, even though it's iced. My lowly uh, winter go to is a venti Pike Place roast with whole milk. Um, that's, del- that's delicious. Yeah, it's very cl- it's a classic order. It's not as daring yeah. as yours. And when and then in summer, I switched to a venti iced coffee. Of course. Anyway, for good news for both of us, should we choose to accept, Starbucks has teamed up with Visa to make us Visa credit card. So, you know, I, much like many people have like a, like a airline rewards credit card or whatever, you can now get one for Starbucks. 
And so um, the Starbucks Rewards Visa card is named for the company's loyalty program, and cardholders automatically become members who get exclusive perks, according to the company. This is a report from USA Today. Their credit card through Chase has a $49 annual fee, which I think is kind of high, and stars accrued via the credit card expire the same way as those earned the traditional way do on the first day of the month after a full six months. So use your cards, man. Use your stars is the is the point. Yeah, so use use those stars up quickly. I I think the thing that makes this uh, worthwhile is if you're the kind of person that occasionally gets a Starbucks food item that you can deploy massive amounts of stars in the food item. They have a salad there that I'm going to confess that I get occasionally. Oh, you do? Yeah. Well, there's a four o'clock that with my four o'clock drink. Sometimes I need a snack to bridge it, and uh, a lot of times it's a whole almond snack. And I, you know, I I can hear the hungry homies out there. House, what are you talking about? I I I I can't constantly be having meatballs at every meal. I'm sorry, my taste buds. <laughs> so I will get. There's a salad that has like lentils and vegetables and quinoa, and there's like broccoli in it. That salad sometimes jumps out of the refrigerator case and into my hands. Now I don't eat the whole thing. I eat just the vegetables off the top and have it with my uh, my iced coffee. And it's a pretty good like tide me over until dinner time when I jump into my full house of carbs, <laughs> my culinary comrades. So don't house worry, I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm doing me. Um, I find this card thing because you have to pay for it slightly obnoxious. But the reason that I thought it was worth talking about is because I know one guy who will find this very appealing. He'll be a first mover on this. And that is none other than the podfather himself, Bill, Bill Simmons. Simmons. Bill Simmons was was uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, pining for, in the first place, the, the Starbucks affinity card. He wanted to be able to, uh, he said this on a podcast, me and the beloved Kevin Wilds were on there. Shout out to Kevin um, Wilds. Shout out we to Kevin, Kevin Wilds. We love Kevin, Yeah, right. Um, talking about how how great it would be if there was some kind of affinity program where he could use a card to essentially, you know, handle the entirety of his transaction. It didn't really make sense because uh, that's basically the idea of a credit card. Um, and you could have whatever rewards you want. But Bill wanted specific rewards tied to his specific Starbucks experience. And, and lo and behold, here it is. Ready, ready for the for the Podfather. Fifteen years later, it's here. I got to make sure he knows about it. Yeah, I, I I think in addition to whatever color card, what what color card is the highest card you can have with Starbucks right now? Is it gold it's or the is, gold. It, is there a it's black the gold. card? Okay, no, it's the, the gold. gold. The gold is the gold standard. Yeah, well, I think he's <laughs> going to be having the gold and this this Chase card that he'll gladly spend the fifty bucks for because he he'll he'll easily. Uh, Use up an, enough in terms of the you know generating the points, the stars. What's it called? Stars, yeah. Uh, stars and then you get and one then, star and then deploying for, them. I think this is like this is lame. One star for every four dollars spent somewhere other than Starbucks. That's really low. Like I have an American Express Delta card, and I think I get like one point per dollar spent, and then like points. That makes miles. a lot more sense. I four dollars. I mean, come uh, on. I know four dollars is a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. I I, I got some questions about how this is going to work, but. I guess it's a step in the right direction if you love Starbucks. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe as we're talking it through, I'm I'm getting less and less convinced <laughs> this is a good idea. I mean, I, it's not going to be for me because I'm not spending fifty dollars for it. Yeah, no. um, notwithstanding the amount of Starbucks that I consume, and I would move off of Starbucks. That my brand loyalty to Starbucks runs a hundred percent to to convenience. Oh, me too. The place that's around the corner from me in the afternoon for my afternoon coffee is Starbucks. Yeah. If it was a La Colombe or mm. a blue, a blue, blue bottle. what's it called? Blue bottle or any of the delicious coffee we enjoyed with Jason Parker on our DTLA coffee tour, then that would get, you know, I'd, I'd happily shift over, but it's, this is, this is where they're at. My, my, my main defense is Starbucks. They just always know what it's going to, what you're going to get, which I appreciate, Yeah, which is one right. of the reasons I like it. I'm like, yes, I know exactly this is going to taste every morning, but it just becomes part of your ritual and that really, really whatever's closest to you. I don't like love the taste of coffee. It's just like part of my life. Sure. I, I do like the t- taste of coffee, notwithstanding the fact that when Jason tried to help our palates, I observed that one of the coffees he had us try tasted like spaghetti and meatballs to me. But that's just where my head is at. I mean, that's that's you know, I'm constantly trying to make uh, things taste like delicious things that I I love in my life. That's just my my approach to the world. I feel the same way, House. What a what a positive note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> we we've done it. All right, Juliet. We have our homework. Between now and next week, we know that the CEO of PepsiCo is going to come out with some kind of apology. Uh, you know, walk back. Mea culpa. Walk. Walk back for Lady Doritos. I can't wait to compare notes with you on that as well. Um, thank you. I'll talk to you later. Can't wait. Love it. Bye. Bye. All right, my taste buds. We have done it. Another fantastic house of carbs in the books. Great job with the belly sourcing this week leading up to the Super Bowl. We got some great pictures, input, suggestions, and outlines of delicious meals that you hungry homies enjoyed for the Super Bowl. Please keep it up. We are right in the middle of winter. Let's see some stews. Let's see some chili recipes. We're looking for your winter food input always at our Instagram at the House of Carbs. That is the perfect place to drop your picks, your recommendations, suggestions, and restaurants serving outstanding winter foods. We're going to be running winter food here for as long as, you know, we the the, the groundhog saw, saw his shadow, so it's cold here. It's 30 degrees in the DMV. Keep hitting us with some nice winter foods. We are back next week, of course, with another episode of House of Carbs. In the meantime, my hungry homies, let's stay hungry out there. <laughs>